You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. We're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 20. So if you have your Bibles, feel free to open it up. Otherwise, it'll be on the wall over to my left. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that bears that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. This is the word of the Lord. All right, there we go. Well, good morning, Redemption Hill Church. Good to see you this morning. As you can tell, we are entering into the Advent season, and uh, so it's wonderful to sing new songs and some familiar ones. As you can tell from the public reading of Holy Scripture, we're still working through the Sermon on the Mount, and so uh, we'll be working through that today, and then next week we'll transition into some Advent sermons. So that's kind of what you can expect uh, for today. And for today, uh, we do not have Redemption Hill Kids today, but we have it next week. So uh, if, if you need kids' sermon notes, those are in the hallway. We also have some totes out there as well. Kids, if you get, re- get restless, there's a restless kids' room across the hallway where the sermon's uh, piped in. Uh, one more note before I pray and get into uh, the Word of God here. 2023, just want to let you know what's, what's happening as the calendar turns. I mentioned this briefly last week, so I'll mention it one more time if you weren't, um, if you're serving, if you weren't here last week. We'll finish the Sermon on the Mount, finally, <laughs> in early 2023, probably at the end of January. And then there's going to be a sermon series on the biblical covenants. Biblical covenants are oftentimes overlooked in Scripture, overlooked by us when we see it in Scripture. And a lot of times we still don't know what to do with all these covenants. We've got the Mosaic Covenant, the Abrahamic Covenant, the Davidic Covenant. We've got this covenant of works in the, that we see in Genesis. What are all these things and how they fit together? We're going to go over that. And I think it's going to be beneficial for you because in addition to it's just good to talk about that, and it's good for you to see from God's word, what do we do with the covenants? It's actually going to set the foundation for a longer sermon series as we go through the book of Hebrews. Uh, we'll spend a lot of time in the book of Hebrews, and actually we're going to spend a lot of time in the Old Testament as we go through Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is the finest exposition and explanation of the Old Testament. And so while we'll be in a New Testament book, we'll expect spending a lot of time in the Old Testament. But for today, Jesus is once again challenging us from Matthew 7. Before looking at the words of our Lord, let me pray, and then we're going to dive right into the deep end. Uh, The deep end is going to be like having a hard but necessary conversation with a friend or spouse. And uh, I think, as you can tell from the content, 
that conversation certainly needs to take place. So I'm going to pray briefly for God's help, and then we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, I'm just going to confess um, I'm needy this morning. I need help. Lord, my, my prayer this morning is I would pastor well from the pulpit with your word. As we talk about what is false and what is true, Lord, I pray that I would be gracious, but also clear. I pray for these dear, precious friends that are in front of me this morning, that you would indeed, in the power of the Spirit that is at work in their lives, you prepare their heart to receive what you have for them. We pray this in the only name we can pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Last week, I mentioned that the Sermon on the Mount is split into three sections. So Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7, where the Sermon on the Mount is located. And there's three sections. We were learning about the ethics of God's kingdom. That was the biggest section. Now we will look at a few warnings and an exhortation about living in God's kingdom. Here are the ethics, and then now what? The first warning concerns the path you are taking in life. I don't have it on... I don't have it up there, but I'm going to read it to you, what Jesus says. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy. That leads to destruction. Very clear. You go by the wide gate, that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. A lot of people going through that wide gate. Not me saying that. Jesus is saying that. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Following Christ will require you to go through the narrow gate. I'm not, I will not linger on verses 13 and 14 too long. So here are a few points about these verses and the connection that is being made with verse 15. First, going through the narrow gate requires believing in hard, sometimes hard, but very precious truths. Going through the narrow gate means putting in the effort to think well about what you believe about God. Second, going through the narrow gate means receiving the, the restrictions offered by Christ. As you notice, as we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is preaching Christian ethics. And he's putting restrictions on our life for our good. Following Christ is not going to church on Sunday and doing whatever you want between Monday and Saturday. Jesus is either Lord over all of your life, or he is no Lord at all in your life. Third, the gate is narrow because only those who have genuine faith in Christ can enter. In this respect, Christianity is exclusive. All are welcome, yes, but not all enter. These three points about the narrow gate are why Jesus addresses false prophets, right? They were teaching the easy life. Many of them were teaching easy believism. They taught that the gate was wide. And Jesus says, no. No. Therefore, 
Jesus sets the record straight. Jesus warns us about false prophets, and I'm also going to add into that false teachers. He warns us about this group of people. He tells us how to recognize false prophets and teachers. So it is essential, I think, to settle in your heart the fact that false prophets and false teachers exist. They exist, and the church needs to, at times, not all the time, but needs to call out false prophets and false teachers. That's what Jesus is doing. Actually, if we go through the New Testament, many, many times people are called out by name. Don't follow that guy. Don't follow that guy. And we're going to see why here in a moment. But we, we have to settle in our hearts that this dynamic exists. In particular... Local church shepherds must be bold and gracious to protect the sheep from false prophets and false teachers. Now, I really struggled with this, this sermon. Not the content. Content's pretty clear to me. It's how to articulate the content in light of what Christ says. That's my pastoral confession this morning. So what I will be doing, and hopefully graciously and appropriately, is I will be naming names. I'm going to do everything I can not to join the angry mob, you know, when you name names. But sometimes it's helpful to give examples. Like, you just can't say false prophets and walk away. Be like, what do you, what do you mean by that? Who? What? Where? I mean, it's one thing to describe a basketball game. It's another thing to be watching the basketball game or even in the game. It helps you understand a little bit better what is going on and why it's important. So I think two realities can be accurate at the same time. Yes, I want to be loving, and I want to be straightforward about what is true, about what is false. At the end of the day, my goal is to be faithful to God and his word, which means I need to warn you about false prophets and teachers. We're going to get to this, but I want you to build your house upon the rock. That's one of the last sermons in the Sermon on the Mount, and not on sand. Years ago, when I was new to pastoral ministry, I received some pushback from a friend who was, because I was warning people about this book that people were reading called Love Wins by Rob Bell. This is the naming names part, right? But it makes a point. And a friend of mine's like, just push back. He's like, why are you criticizing it? And I'm like, good question. I did the same when the book The Shack was publicized. Some of you may have read those books, right? You don't have to raise your hand. I've, I've read them. Here's another book that I read and did not approve of. Blue Like Jazz by Donald Miller. Very popular books. Very popular books. What did all these books have in common? Subtle and not so subtle currents of heresy. I do not think any of these examples are controversial, frankly. And I th they certainly help make a point. In Love Wins by Rob Bell, he denies hell and universalism is affirmed. Talk about a wide gate. Everyone's in. Bring your friends. What about repentance and faith? Nah. Come on in. When you affirm universalism, you deny the work of Christ and the Christian faith. This book was widely popular in 2011 
and Christians were gobbling up this false teaching. The shack indulges in more universalism. The shack dismisses the Christian need to walk in holiness. It creates a dichotomy, if you've read it, between justice, the justice of God, and the love of God, as if the two cannot exist together. It also creates God to be tritheistic. So if you know church history at all, that is absolutely heresy. Christians seem to love this book so much, they made a movie out of it in 2017. One of the aims of Blue Like Jazz, which is one of the first books I read after coming to faith, one of the aims of this particular book is to, to wrestle a moral vision out of the Bible and out of Christianity. Blue Like Jazz would prefer you make choices based on feelings. How do you feel today? Make your choices based upon that instead of doctrine and biblical virtue. Long story short, the author would prefer you not listen to Jesus and what he says in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I don't, I don't know these guys. I really don't, right? Never sent them an email, to be fair. Never tweeted at them. Never posted on their you know, Facebook, whatever. But their ideas are dangerous to Christianity. They're dangerous. It, you, you saw these books at all the Christian bookstores. Put out right up front. These books are a little older, like I said, and some of you may never heard of them, but they have negatively impacted a lot of people. But there are other false prophets and teachers in our day, like right now. And I'm going to mention a few obnoxious ones in here in a moment. When we read Matthew 7, 15 to 20 in particular, I think it is essential to distinguish between a false prophet and a sinful prophet. We must distinguish between a false teacher and a sinful church teacher. A distinction will narrow what Jesus is trying to say in this passage. You and I can go down a list of gifted leaders who preach the truth but disqualify themselves because of like an egregious sin, right? This person is not a false prophet necessarily, but a sinful and perhaps a hypocritical leader, right? I make the distinction not to excuse the sin of pastors and church leaders, but to show how false prophets and teachers could be in this other category. You could have a morally sound leader who is actively teaching that Jesus is not fully God. Indeed, many false prophets and teachers tend to be morally upright, right? Look good. Nice guy. No problem, right? They look morally upright, which means it's crucial to understand the words being used. The apostle Peter is candid when he says this. But false prophets also rose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. That's pretty straightforward as well. Who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bring it upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, for their destruction is not asleep. Now, 
I'm going to acknowledge this. Some of you might be uncomfortable with like me naming names, and I, and I get it. I really, really do. If I called out false prophets and false teachers every Sunday, I would eventually come across as very unloving and very angry. I'm, a, I'm that Christian with the rock in my shoe. Like I'm always upset about something. But how are false prophets and teachers identified unless they're named? Right? The false prophets I mentioned, teachers, at least their ideas are false, have never been a part of my local church, but their books have crept into many local churches. The Apostle Peter shows us how they get into the church, right? What did Peter say? They secretly bring in destructive heresies. Universalism, for example, is a dangerous heresy that has made, that has made its way into some churches. Here's the deal with false prophets and false teachers. You don't, you don't have a false prophet walk into the church with a hat that says false prophet. Right? You don't have that guy. You don't have a false teacher walking into church saying, false teacher. But in time, Peter says, they will exploit you with what? What did Peter say? False words. Jesus is equally clear about the seductive nature of false prophets. Look at what he says in verse 15. Beware of false prophets. Like the title of this sermon is Beware. Watch out. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Looks like a sheep. Acts like a sheep. So it must be a sheep, right? No. Not here. A, fa a false prophet puts on a Christian costume and potentially becomes a member of a local church and maybe even the pastor. The Greek word for ravenous could also mean swindler. This kind of person is trying to divide and deceive through lies. I think that picture of a false prophet being a wolf makes an important point. Let's say you have a sheep pen, right? And there are 70 sheep in the pen, which is you know about the size of Redemption Hill if everyone showed up. And then, all of a sudden, a wolf gets into the sheep pen. What is going to happen, right? Like, you all know what is going to happen. The sheep are in danger. Do you want to know what books like Blue Like Jazz, The Shack, and Love Wins has caused people to do? Countless people in churches have, quote, deconstructed their faith. Essential doctrines like of Christianity, their question like the virgin birth of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus is regulated to a good moral teacher and not Savior and Lord. I've seen this movie played over and over and over throughout my years of pastoral ministry. I know the script. A false prophet tells a partial truth just like when Satan tempted Jesus in the desert, a person takes the par partial truth but ends up being infected by the lie. And then the lie causes doubt. Doubt breeds unbelief. And then all of a sudden, a person walks away from the church and walks away from Christ. 
I'm telling you, I've seen this movie over and over and over, and it breaks my heart. My heart breaks for the person who's walked away. And I hope a righteous anger grows in me for the one who sowed the lie. What I am not saying is that you can't ever have doubts about the Christian faith. Don't hear me saying that. I'm not talking about a person who comes to me and says, Pastor Sean, I am just struggling with ABC of the Christian faith, whatever it is, fill in the blank. I'm not talking about an an honest person's question. I've asked a lot of questions over the years, a lot of questions. I think asking questions about Christianity can cause growth in a person's faith. What I am pointing out and what Jesus is talking about is that a false teacher and prophet takes your doubt and exploits it. This is why when a wolf gets into the sheep pen, the shepherds need to expect to get bloodied from battling the wolf. I was reminded of this several weeks ago, but someone had mentioned this sheepdog that I put up on the projection. And this sheepdog was trusted with caring for the sheep, and the sheepdog was just all bloodied from battling a wolf. It is pastoral malpractice if the shepherd does not fight off the wolf. Let me say it again. It is pastoral malpractice if the shepherd does not fight off the wolf. A pastor dishonors Christ if he does not react to a wolf attempting to pick off sheep entrusted to his care. Look, as shepherds, Rob and I are not looking to pick a fight, right? We're not looking to pick a fight. We're not looking around every corner for a wolf. Far from it. However, we must remain ready and diligent to protect the sheep that are within the pen. So, If we take the warning from Christ seriously, then the question becomes, how do we recognize false prophets and false teachers? How do we recognize a wolf that looks like a sheep? Jesus sends us in the right direction in verse 16. You will recognize them by their fruits. When the Lord saved me 20 years ago, I was constantly hung up on all the agricultural metaphors in the Bible. And I grew up in an agrarian setting, and I lived in the city. Now, years later, in living in the country, the agricultural metaphors pop with amazing color. And the metaphors are actually really, really simple. In verse 16, Jesus shares a simple but profound metaphor. How can you identify a false prophet? You will see what they produce. Let's say it's winter, and you have two apple trees identical, planted right next to each other. They look the same, and they grow the same apples. The trees are bare, right? It's winter, and there's no fruit yet. And then spring rolls around, and there are buds on the tree. It's just beginning to sprout. Throughout the spring and summer, there's good weather for the, you know, good weather, rain's coming down, the trees are growing. But the blossoms on one of the trees does not look quite right but you look past it because like it's still early, right? I don't see any apples, so I got blossoms. And then fall finally comes around. We had apple trees for a while, and when fall comes around, you're just ready to pick those apples, right? Ready to harvest them. However, you notice that one apple tree has big 
bright red apples. You, you, you bite into it and it's delicious. And then you look at the other tree and the apples seem withered. They are not bright or big. The apples just seem bruised. Will you pluck apples from that tree? Of course not. It's a waste of time. You can identify a false prophet or teacher by what is produced. And here's another question we need to wrestle with, which is not specifically answered in Matthew 7. It is one thing to pick the good apple from the good tree and to walk away from the bruised apple on the bad tree, but life is not that simple. You and I know life is not that simple. Life is much more complicated than looking at two trees and and figuring out what the fruit looks like. So how do we recognize good fruit from bad fruit, which in turn allows us to recognize false teachers from good teachers? I'll give you six tips for identifying a false prophet or teacher, right? Six tips. You can identify a false teacher who is stirring up division by teaching contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Read with me 1 Timothy 6. If anyone teaches a different doctrine, Paul says to Timothy, and does not agree with sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit, and he understands nothing. Be like me walking in here on Sunday and saying, this is what it looks like to get saved. By your own efforts, you are saved. All of a sudden, when I'm preaching that, I am preaching contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because Sean Powers can't save himself. You cannot save yourself on your own merits. It's by grace and grace alone. Go to Ephesians 2.8. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and depraved of the truth, imagining that godlessness is a means of gain or godliness is a means of gain. So a metric for identifying good fruit is unity, which is centered on good doctrine. A false teacher, a false teaching, will produce division and ungodliness through unsound doctrine. Like, what you believe, what follows from what you believe is how you live. That's why doctrine is really important. Number two, you can identify bad fruit if what is being spoken about does not line up with the Word of God. And because what God says is true, bad fruit is seen if what is being spoken does not line up with the facts given and revealed by God. For example, if a pastor tells two young adults, it's called Sally and Johnny, and says to Sally and Johnny, go ahead and move in together even though you're not married. That is a bad tree bearing bad fruit. Third, here's another consideration, and it actually has historical precedent. Throughout church history, false prophets and teachers have disregarded the Old Testament. Want nothing to do with it. It's just seen as bad, law, angry God, right? That's what you hear. If this were a history class, I could trace how how supposed Christian leaders relegate the Old Testament to the B team, the JV. These teachers tend to teach unsound theology and unsound Christian morality. And quite frankly, we still see this in churches throughout America. One prominent pastor said that we need to unhitch the New Testament, the Old Testament from the New Testament. 
We don't, need to, we don't need to go there. We're just New Testament people. And I'm telling you that in time, bad fruit will be created because the entire counsel of God is not treated as authoritative and sufficient. Number four, watch out for pastors and Christian leaders that fleece the church. Certainly, a pastor needs to earn a wage, 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 Corinthians 9, but there is an abuse in some corners of Christianity. There's an unhealthy and unbiblical appeal to money. I mean, here's, here's one of the most egregious examples. And you can, you can Google this, you can go online and, and read all about it because it was on CNN, it was on MSNBC, it was on Fox News. All the news outlets were picking it up. In 2015, a, a megachurch minister named you may have heard of the name, Creflo Dollar, asked his people for $60 million. Now, you might ask the question, well, what do you want $60 million for? Building? You want land? Building? I, I can kind of get my mind around that. $60 million seems like a lot, but okay, I got you. You want to build? You want to expand? Okay, fine. It's the megachurch movement right now in America. Is that what he wanted $60 million for? No. He wanted the Gulfstream G650 jet, private jet. true story. And frankly, I mean, no disrespect. I have no problem calling this man a false prophet and a false teacher. If you're trying to raise $60 million for your own personal private jet, and you're taking that money from the church, that's disgusting. That is disgusting. And here's another way we can identify bad fruit. Here's Matthew 24, 24. It's not on, your, on the screen, but I'll just read it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. That's Jesus' words. Listen, I'm a continuationist. I believe in the revelatory gifts of the Spirit continue to this day. I do not see a biblical argument against it. However, as with teaching, things get abused. There are church leaders that manipulate others by manufacturing healing or by giving false prophetic words. I mean, there's an example you all know for years, Benny Hinn, right? Having these massive rallies. And he's taking his coat and people are falling down. Now, I've heard he's repented. And I pray to God he has. But I can't imagine how many people he has led away from Christ because of his false ministry, his fake ministry. I had a Benny Hinn moment in my early 20s. In 2005, I was at a conference, and a guy from Australia was, was flown in, and uh, he preached. We were in the Twin Cities at the time. This guy was also uh, a self-proclaimed faith healer. Well, after he preached, he kind of went down the, down the line, row by row, and I'm kind of in the middle of the church, and he's, you know, putting his hand on people's foreheads and they're falling back. And I'm just observing this. It's like my like first time I've seen something like this. And then I'm realizing there are people in the crowd who are planted there. And he gets to my row. And I'm, I, I have it in my mind. I'm going to be a statue. And I have my eyes locked on this guy. So he comes down the row one by one. People are going down. And he gets to me, whoop, skips right over. Because he and I knew the truth. He and I knew the truth. In that moment, we agreed. He's a false prophet. 
and it is only a matter of time before the dark lies are exposed by the light when you have false prophets and false teachers. Here's one more tip for discerning bad fruit. We get this from 2 Timothy. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Just if I paused right there, isn't that a truth right now in America? There is a time we will, we will not endure sound teaching. But Paul continues, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers who suit their own passions. I want to hear that, so I'm going to go to that guy. I want to hear that thing, so I'm going to go to that person. And as a result, we'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. This last point is most subtle because many of us like to be told what we want to hear, myself included, right? We want our ears itched. We want them tickled. We want to hear what we want to hear. And pastors and Christian leaders are itching ears from the pulpit. It, it's happening. We hear messages like, live your best life now and not strive to live faithfully before God by putting away your sin. That second message is not popular. Live your best life now, really popular. Pastors are preaching about how to live the good life. But they should be preaching about how to live a godly life. A cheap grace is being peddled and a costly grace that centers on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is being sidelined. You know, if I were asked to preach at a pastor's conference and I could preach whatever I want, teach them whatever I want, I would tell pastors to teach and preach the hard truths that we read about in God's word. In grace and in love, preach what they need to hear and not always what they want to hear. So in light of everything I've said this far, it seems the teaching of Jesus is warranted, right? We read in Matthew 7, You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. So I'm not going to belabor the point other than to add that all the examples I've given are bad fruit coming from a diseased tree. Now, I have one more question to ask of Jesus, and then I think it's appropriate to point out basic steps that help ensure false teaching does not come from leaders in this church, right? Here, first, here's the question. Why does Jesus warn us about false prophets and false teachers in the Sermon on the Mount? Why do we have that all throughout the New Testament? The easy answer is that he warns us because they exist. It's the obvious answer. It's the easy answer, but it's the one we need to realize. They exist. But there's more to the why. Jesus, Paul, Peter, warn us about false prophets and teachers to protect the doctrinal integrity that we find in the local church. When I say doctrinal integrity, I do not mean debates over eschatology. I know in this room, every position is taken, and we have those discussions, and it's fun to talk about, right? We all agree that Jesus is going to come back, but all the particulars, we debate, and it's fun, right? We're not talking about that. I'm not talking about the color of the carpet. 
I do, I do not mean debates about whether we should use grape juice or wine for communion. What they and we need to protect against is the purity of the gospel, the unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ. And good under-shepherds of the chief shepherd need to warn against leaders who misuse the word of God and misuse the message from the word of God. I mean, I could quote scripture all day about the warnings of false prophets and teachers. But here's one more. In the opening to the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul comes out swinging. And this is very uncharacteristic to how he begins his other books, his other epistles. But he comes out swinging for the fences. Paul gives a rebuke and then spends the remainder of his letter correcting the false teaching that has made its way into the Galatian church. Here's what he says. I mean, like... He brought the baseball bat. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. He's astonished and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should, uh, from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, these three words are strong. Let him be accursed. Four words, excuse me. Bad math today. Let him be accursed. False gospels are being preached and peddled by pastors and ministers. And now I want to say with the Apostle Paul, let them be accursed. Like, I don't want, I'm not trying to be harsh. I do not want to unnecessarily cry wolf. And I certainly do not want to be one of those Christian agitators on Twitter who feels the need to comment on everything and go after everyone who doesn't agree with them 100%. Don't want to be that guy. There's a lot of those out there. Don't want to be that guy. But I and Rob Lane, I guess I'm speaking for you now. Sorry, I should have got your approval. All right, good. But I and Rob Lane will do everything in our power to care for and protect the sheep entrusted to us by God. Sometimes care and protection includes pointing out the false prophets and false teachers within our midst. What keeps me and Rob Lane from being a false teacher, false prophet? I mean, from the testimony of Holy Scripture and life experience, there are a lot of false prophets and teachers, sometimes more than what we're willing to admit. For the, for, for the sake of being nice and under the guise of extending unity and grace, false teachers are unrestrained and perpetuating lies. And I say all this at the risk of sounding like a theological elitist, which is not what I want you to hear from me. But I would not blame you for asking me what keeps you from becoming a false prophet or a false teacher? That's a fair question. I mean, I just stood up here for the last 35 minutes pointing people out, naming names. How come, I, how come I'm not on that list? How come Rob Lane's not on that list? Perhaps all pastors and Christian leaders should ask that question from time to time. Asking this kind of question keeps the heart humble. So here is my answer, which can be applied to any pastor. This is what hopefully keeps us from being in that other category. The first step to being faithful to God and his church is to be part of a local church. 
the American notion of individualism has fed the lie that Christians do not need to be part of a church. The same is for pastors. One of the primary issues I had, had with some high-profile evangelists and apologists is that they were never held accountable by a local church. They had their ministry, and it was over here, completely disconnected from the local church. There is no such thing as a homeless Christian. There's no such thing, certainly, as a homeless pastor. You're connected to a body. The second principle to stave off the threat of heterodoxy is to have a plurality of elders. For several years, I was the only elder at Redemption Hill. That's just how we planted. But one of the prayers at the very, very beginning, even before our first service, that, Lord, would you provide other men to make a plurality of elders? If I start preaching nonsense, if I ever become the false teacher in Galatia, Rob is here to correct the ship. He is. And I know he would do so. Another guardrail against the danger of false teaching is our confession of faith. Redemption Hill is a bit of a unicorn in the Des Moines metro. Hard to find a lot like us. We hold, hold to credo baptism, right? Adult baptism, also called confessional. You confess and then you're baptized. We also have a confession of faith. So how does a confession of faith help guarding against false teaching? Well, the Trinity Confession of Faith, which is what we hold, builds off what we call the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, who stole their Confession of Faith from the Presbyterians prior, right? Everyone's just stealing from everyone. Here's the long story short. Our Confession of Faith falls into a historical tradition that is faithful to the Word of God. I mean, our confession, it is deep, it is deep, and it is wide. Like I've said before, like, we're not hiding anything from you about what we believe as a local church. We are very clear. You don't have to agree with all of it, but in terms of what you're going to hear from me, what's going to be preached, it's going to fall in line with our confession of faith. And it's good to be part of a denomination that has a confession of faith. So once again, if I were to go off the rails and continually preach a message contrary to the gospel, Rob would not only pull me aside, but he'd pull out our confession of faith. And he'd be like, dude, this is what you agreed to affirm and defend. I mean, it's one thing to make a mistake and speak, you know, poorly in a moment, but to continually do it over and over, you see a pattern. I mean, I, need, I hope he pulls me aside. I know he will. So our confession of faith is another layer of accountability. A final guard, guardrail is certainly the word of God. I will continue to encourage all of you, everyone here, to be like the Bereans of Acts 17. Be like the Bereans. Listen and test everything I say against Holy Scripture. That's my encouragement to you. Even this morning, test what I say against God's Word. The church body, when she's acting like the Bereans, is another layer of accountability. In a sermon where I name names, it is also appropriate to avoid theological elitism. And I want to avoid that by saying Rob and I come under the authority of God's word. We commit to never isolating ourselves from the body of Christ. We will continually pursue being a part of a plurality of elders. And we submit to a confession of faith, the Trinity confession of faith. Rob and I aren't perfect, right? We have made mistakes. 
we will make more mistakes. Uh, maybe I'll speak for myself there in that time. I will make mistakes. <laughs> right? However, I hope you can rest easy because of all the layers of accountability that exist within this church. Further, Redemption Hill is not a perfect church. And I can comfortably say there are other good churches in the Des Moines metro. I've even blogged about other churches I would recommend in this metro. Love those brothers. Love what they're doing. There are good gospel-centered churches located in this metro, even when there's some, some theological disagreement. Today's message is not about declaring Redemption Hill as the only true and correct church. Far from it. But some false prophets and teachers are wolves wearing sheep's clothing. The wolves lead people away from Christ and away from Christ's bride, the church. Therefore, we need to hear the warning from Christ in verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. I have one more point to add before I close in prayer. I've spent all my time talking about basically church leadership, right? false prophets, false teachers that assume some type of leadership or authority role. And rightfully so, because the text demands that we look at it, right? That's why I believe in expositional preaching here at Redemptional Church. Text is saying something, we're going to go to it, even when it's hard. However, everyone in this room can ask the question, am I bearing good fruit or bad fruit? Everyone can ask that question. The way I see it, is that there are two groups of people in every room. The first group does not have faith in Christ. That's group one. They cannot bear good fruit, only bad fruit. If you are in this group, Christ calls you to repent of your sin and turn to Christ as your Savior and Lord. If you do so, you can bear good fruit. The second group of people can bear good fruit because they have been given the gift of faith. But if you're anything like me, Occasional pruning needs to take place in my life. John 15 is an excellent encouragement if Jesus is your Savior and Lord. I am the vine. Jesus says, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Takes away the bad fruit, the bad, bad branch. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. So, are you bearing good fruit or bad fruit? Oftentimes, we need the pruning, though. Pruning involves pain. It requires change. But it is good. All Christians undergo pruning, but the end goal of pruning is so that you may bear more good fruit. And may that be the case for you and for faithful prophets and teachers. May all of God's people receive his gracious pruning so that more good fruit will be produced. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.